0: 12 and we'll be reading verses 11 through 21. 2 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 11. I have been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience with signs and wonders and mighty works, for in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you, forgive me this wrong. Here for the third time I am ready to come to you. I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. For if I love you more, am I to be loved less. But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ, and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip conceit and disorder. I fear that when I come again my God may humble me before you and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity sexual immorality and sensuality that they have practiced. Let's pray together. Father as we come together this morning as we approach this time in the service pray that you would bless our brother toby as he preaches lord that you would fill him with your spirit give him freedom and power to share the things that he has learned as he has studied this text father i pray that you would help us to understand more this morning about our savior more this morning about what it means to follow him and more father about what it means to rejoice in the salvation that we have been given and i pray these things in the name of jesus amen
1: Well, if you are a guest with us, you come occasionally, or this is your first time, you may be thinking, did he read the wrong text? Because isn't this Christmas time, and that was not a Christmas text? Well, you are right. Nowhere in there is the manger, the shepherds, the angels, Mary, Joseph. Yet, as we finish today, once we look at this text, I hope that you will see how this text ought to call to mind our Lord Jesus Christ, who He is and what He has done for us. Recently, I was talking with my grandfather, and he's a retired pastor, and he was talking to me about a friend's church. His brother goes to a church in Texas. The pastor is a very dynamic uh, effective preacher, but recently he had to resign because he was committing adultery with one of the women who helps lead music for the church. And my grandfather looked at me and he said, Toby, why does this kind of thing happen so much these days? Well, we agreed that pastors are still sinners still Christians who sin, they always have been, but I did propose this as a partial explanation of this epidemic, at least as I see it, that this kind of thing happening more and more could be an undesired side effect of the the celebritization of pastoral ministry, of this whole idea of celebrity pastors, the notion that it is… It is good and desirable to seek to be known beyond one's own church." Now, certainly there have always been men whose uh, preaching, whose influence has gone beyond their own congregation, but now it's something to be pursued. So, pastors have to, to write blogs and books and have podcasts and stream sermons and maintain a strong social media presence and always speak to every cultural item on every social media platform, and they seek to get into the conference speaking circuit. Now, all of those types of activities are not necessarily bad. They can be used to advance the gospel and strengthen the church, but they can also fuel pride in that man. And one of the side effects on the church, I believe, is that the church's view of pastoral ministry and what it finds valuable about pastoral ministry has changed. You see, what has happened is that giftedness has moved to take center stage. We need a visionary leader. We need a prolific writer. Only the most charismatic preacher with a proven track record of public influence and success need apply. And the larger the church, the more you see it. But quite frankly, all the smaller churches just want to be like all the larger churches. Everybody seems to be after this thing. And with this mindset, what happens is only what a pas- who a pastor is and what he does on Sunday morning matters. That that becomes the only thing that matters. You see, when giftedness takes center stage, godliness is what moves to the periphery. So, a pastor can be deceived, thinking as long as he performs well on Sunday, he's fulfilled his duty. Now, how does this compare with what the Bible says about those who would be in pastoral ministry? Let me just read you some of this from 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. An overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. And he goes on. And then Paul says the same thing to Titus in Titus chapter 1. An overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Now, of course, giftedness matters, doesn't it? That's where you say yes. Giftedness matters, doesn't it? A pastor has to be able to teach. I couldn't even get you to respond to the question. <laughs> Pastors must be able to teach. They must be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine. They must be able to rebuke those who contradict it. But, if you just do statistics on the types of qualifications that are listed here, and if importance is underscored by repetition, then certainly while giftedness matters, godliness matters more. Listen to the words of Charles Spurgeon, "'Let a man once become really holy.'" even though he has but the slenderest possible ability. And he will be a fitter instrument in God's hand than the man of gigantic accomplishments who is not obedient to the divine will or clean and pure in the sight of the Lord God Almighty. This emphasis on giftedness didn't just start in the last, you know, since television came around. The emphasis on giftedness, on... Powerful rhetoric is what's going on in Corinth in the first century. And Paul is seeking to call the church away from it. He's calling them to commend what God commends, to value what God values, namely, godly leaders. Take Paul, for example. Paul has served them in godliness, and yet they are despising him. And here's Paul's response after all this boasting that he's been doing. I have been a fool. You force me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. I ought to have been commended by you. Paul doesn't like boasting. He's not proud. He considers himself nothing. He says that in the next sentence, basically. But they've seen him. They've known him. They've heard him. And they ought to have commended him. That's a strong phrase there, ought to have. It speaks of an obligation or a debt. In other words, it is the right thing to value godly leaders. You see, when a church sees godly leadership and despises it because, well, you know, he doesn't have the public persona or public power or great charisma like other people do. When a, when a church won't value what God values, the church has gone wrong, and that's why Paul is saying this. You see, preaching this text is a bit of a tricky thing. The man preaching is one of your elders. And here I am talking about, and the main idea is that churches should value godly leaders. So it can sound like, well, I'm just begging for approval here. But believe me, I'm not. What I would say is this, when we see godly leaders and we look for something better than that, something more powerful than godliness in our leaders, it reveals our hearts. It reveals what we actually value. You see, God's problem in the Old Testament isn't with the teaching ability of the leaders in Israel. It's with their character. In fact, do you remember what Jesus said of the Pharisees? He said, do what they say, but don't do what they do. Leaders of God's people should never be people that we point to and say, well, you should do what he says, but don't follow his example. I mean, you don't really get to know him. Just buy his books, listen to his sermons, follow him on social media, but you're going to have to dismiss a lot of things if you, you know, that, that you see in here. Churches should value godly leaders. What do these leaders look like? Well, Interestingly enough, they look like Paul. Paul says, I ought to have been commended by you, and then he basically lays out four reasons why he, as one who has sought to be godly among them, should have been commended by them. What do godly leaders look like? What should churches value? Well, churches should value leaders who are, first of all, authenticated by evidence. There ought to be evidence that this is a genuine man of God. He says, "'I've been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you, for I was not at all inferior to these super-apostles.'" even though I am nothing." Now when he says super apostles, I mean the the Greek is like elevated or exceedingly, these exceedingly high and lofty apostles. He is not actually saying they are the best kind of apostle because he's already talked about them as false teachers. He's just making the point by this great exaggeration, I am not inferior to the super apostles even though I am nothing even though I'm nothing. In fact, in chapter 11, he said, you know how Satan does it, right? He disguises himself as an angel of light. Well, so do these characters, these so-called super apostles. They look great until you actually spend time with them and listen to them. And then you see the truth. Paul is not inferior to them. He's not proud. I mean, he's nothing. And then notice what he says, he says, Uh, in chapter, in, in verse 12. The signs of a true apostle... True is not in the Greek text. It's just an interpretive move by the English standard version there to draw the contrast between the super apostles and the true apostles. But the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Did you notice what he didn't say? I showed you the true signs of an apostle. He's not even pointing to himself in this. He's just wanting them to connect the dots. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you. The signs, just this ringing a bell? <laughs> the wonders, the mighty works, sound familiar? Now, thank you, Alexis. Now, if you read all through the, the, the book of Acts, you will see this is happening in Paul's life all the time. In Acts chapter 14, he heals a crippled man. In Acts chapter 16, he casts out a demon from a fortune-telling girl. In Acts chapter 19, he lays on hands so the Holy Spirit is given to the Ephesians. In Acts chapter 20, he raises Eutychus from the dead. All of these things are indications of a true apostle. Why? Because it's carrying on the same kind of authenticating ministry that Jesus had. In Acts 19, 11, Luke writes, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs and, or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of him. I mean, that is power. He didn't even have to show up. His pocket square shows up and people are healed. Now, we don't have a record in Acts of Paul doing this kind of ministry in Corinth. Paul's just telling them Same kind, this is that the things that we do read about in other places happened in Corinth when he was there for more than 18 months. And they should recognize it. Godly leaders are authenticated by evidence. Now, this is not the evidence of today. Okay? Ten years ago, when Kevin Shingleton called me, and said, would you dare enter a six-month process by which you will be interviewed and filleted and grilled and then subjected to 40 or 50 Q&A questions, sessions full of 40 or 50 Q&A questions each. Uh, I didn't show up for the first interview, which was, I think, at CJ and Linda's house. Is that right? First time we met was there. And the, the men that were in that search team didn't say, now, can you show us some signs and wonders? We want to make sure you're the real deal, all right? That's not how it works today. That was a time that God was authenticating the ministry of the apostles so that what they taught and what they wrote would be taken as authority for the rest of the church age. What is it that authenticates men today? Well, it is what Paul says in, in verse 6 of chapter 12, the very thing that he wants them to pay attention to. He says... He doesn't want anyone to think more of me than he sees in me and he hears from me. Look at my life and listen to my teaching and that should be enough, Paul says. That should be enough. So that, in Titus 2, we already saw last week, remember what Paul said to Timothy? Watch your life and your doctrine closely. He tells Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. There's his life. And in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. There is his teaching. What is it that he says? Here's what will make you effective. Here's what proves you're authentic, your life, and your teaching. And then when Peter is pointing out the false teachers in 2 Peter chapter 2, what does he say of them? In verse 1, they "...will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction." In other words, Peter's saying these false teachers, they're going to do false teaching. But that's not all. He says, verse 2, "...many will follow their sensuality." Verse 3, "...in their greed they will exploit you." So what is he saying? False teaching, false living... That means false teacher. What is it that authenticates those who are godly leaders among us? It is both their teaching and their living. Otherwise, when these pastors' sins are revealed, people aren't just saying, hey, you're just a sinner along with everybody else. Now, there's a sense in which that's true. But that spot, that spot is, not, is not meant for those who disqualify themselves according to what the Bible says are qualifications of elders. Churches should value godly leaders who are authenticated by this kind of evidence. But it's not just true of pastors, is it? It's not just true of elders, it's not just true of deacons. It's true of parents, isn't it? You look, you parents know your children can see right through you. You are not a door, you are a window. They can see, they see it all. It's not just true of parents either, just in a general kind of way, I mean it's true in friendships, isn't it? If your friend says one thing and does another, is that, is that friendship? is true when you are in charge of other people at your workplace as an employer, you know, employer or a manager. You say, hey, we're going to have this day off, we're going to have this day off, and then they don't have that day off. You just erode your credibility, don't you? I mean, it's true generally in the workplace. Authenticity is when our lives match our words. This is why that kind of hypocrisy, not of saying, uh, 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 I never sin. I mean, I never sin. That makes God a liar, but the kind of thing where I don't care if my life matches my words. I'm not going to pursue authenticity in the way that the Bible describes it. That speaks of a hard and calloused heart, and it is in a dangerous position. I have have grown to find more danger in the sinner who does not care to repent than in the one who sins in a greater way. The greater the hardness of heart, the more danger there is. Godly leaders are authenticated by evidence. By evidence. Secondly, godly leaders, leaders we should value, are sacrificial in love. Paul goes on to say that. In verses 13 to 15, Paul reminds them that he has never been a financial burden to them. He never asked for a sin. He didn't live on their dime. He didn't stay in their basement and play video games and mooch off of them. I mean, this was not the Apostle Paul's way. He did it all at his own cost. He even lays this out in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, doesn't he? This is what he says in verses 7 to 12 there. He says, Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Or who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Answer's answer is nobody. Everybody who works expects that that work is going to produce something that's going to sustain their life. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And then he asked this question, is it for oxen that God is concerned? He says, does he not certainly speak for our sake? Isn't God talking about oxen there so that you will understand this now? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others, if others share this rightful claim on you, do we, not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Paul basically says he had a right to be supported by the church. This is where we get the idea that pastors, that it is permissible for pastors to receive financial support from their congregations. But Paul tells them he laid all that aside. He didn't want there to be any obstacle in his, to his ministry. Not even the suspicion that he was in it for the money. If you remember, if you were here for the missions conference, you remember uh, George Martin spoke the first week. Dr. Martin is a missions professor at, at Southern. And when I was there the following week and we had lunch, he drove me past the church that he's helping. He, and he just offhandedly, he wasn't even saying it for my benefit. It only just now came to mind. He said, well, I'm just volunteering here trying to revitalize this church. They can't afford to pay me anything. And then he just went on to talk about the neighborhood and what they're trying to do. This is the Apostle Paul kind of thing. He laid aside his right for the good of the church. Sacrificial in love. This is how Paul puts it in verse 13. And what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong I do not take Paul to be genuinely seeking their forgiveness because Paul knows he hasn't done anything wrong. There is at the very least irony here, if not bordering on sarcasm. Oh, forgive me. I didn't charge you for this. I mean, charge you is the wrong word, but you know what I mean. I didn't have one hand out. Forgive me. I took nothing from you. And now he's going to come again according to verse 14. Here for the third time I'm ready to come to you and I will not be a burden. For I seek not what is yours but you. That is a great phrase. When Paul says that the elder is not to be a lover of money, that's what he means. I seek not what is yours but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls... If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Parents save up for their children. This is the normal pattern. Parents sacrifice for the sake of their children. Parents deny themselves certain things that they might otherwise pursue for the sake of their children. Parents give and give and give and give. And the fact of the matter is, all of us who are parents know this and all of us who remember our parents saying, one day you'll know or something like that. We know our, our children are clueless as to what it is that we are sacrificing for them. They may occasionally break through. but I, just, I, I don't even like hearing, I, I try not to say it, you know, this, grumble, this idea of grumbling about our children not being thankful for our sacrifice. Well, okay, I understand, but mostly kids can't even see it. They can't even see it until they're doing it. And Paul says he's like a father to them. That church was born he, under his ministry. And he's raised it through his ministry. And he says, I will spend and be spent for you. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? When he says, I will spend, that's him actively doing something he will sacrifice he will make tents remember he was a tent maker he'll make tents he'll find other ways to get income he'll exhaust himself physically he'll exhaust himself in every other way for their sake he says this about the philippians i poured out myself as a even if i'm poured out as a drink offering for your sake it's worth it it's worth it and then he says he'll be spent isn't that interesting he doesn't just say i'll sacrifice I'll do, I'll do, I'll be actively spending myself, actively exhausting myself for your sake. He's saying, I'll be spent, inferred, by you. I'll be exhausted by you. He will be exhausted by the trouble that they make, by their issues, by their dissension, by their disloyalty, by all this questioning of His character by their lack of understanding of what it even means to be a father to others in the faith. He will gladly, not he will put up with it. You you heard that, right? He doesn't say, I will tolerate spending and being spent for your sake. He says, I will gladly spend and be spent For your sake. For your sake. That is sacrifice, isn't it? In other words, he'll love them. This is what love is I'll spend and I'll be spent. That's love. What's really surprising is in this last question that as much sacrificial love as he gives, they are unmoved by it. Now, I think it would be obvious to all of us that reciprocal love is ideal, isn't it? The idea of one loving the other and the other loving the one, both committing to gladly spend and be spent for the other. But Paul's not asking this question because he needs their love. He's not asking this question because his love cup is empty and he needs them to fill it. I heard that kind of language on the radio this last week. If you use that kind of language, throw it into the garbage can and start speaking the way the Bible speaks about love. Nowhere does the Bible say you need to be loved by other people before you can love. You've already been loved eternally, permanently, and exceedingly abundantly more than you could ask or imagine in the Lord Jesus Christ. So you can love others whether they love you or not. You can. It's interesting when you sit down, I sit down with a married couple, and obviously reciprocal love is ideal in a marriage, isn't it? Two people committed to loving and serving one another, but it doesn't always happen, does it? But the Christian cannot condition their obedience to God in loving the other person. I can't condition my love for another person on on getting love from the other person. So, for those of you who are married or wanting to be married one day, marriage is not 50-50. Marriage is not even 100-100. Marriage is 100 no matter what the other side of that equation looks like. That's what marriage is. That's what godly marriage is. So, if you were to write it, you just write 100-question-mark. This is the mark of Christ-like love. I mean, can you ever really reciprocate the love of Jesus? Ever? And in all our fickleness in this world, all of the failing that we do, His love never changes. That is not only good news for us, that is the model for how we ought to love others. As I have loved you, so you ought to love one another. And we should especially be doing it in the church, and quite frankly, godly leaders should set the example in doing this. Paul did. And when they do, churches should value it. That's what Paul is saying. And then he goes on from there, from sacrificial love to the fact that godly leaders are above reproach in ministry. He says, okay, well, we've dealt with the burden thing, but I've also heard that you're saying that I'm crafty. That's what he goes on to in verse 16. I'm crafty. This word crafty means capable of anything. Now, this is not 21st century American capable of anything, like patting every child on the back saying you can do anything you set your mind to. That is not what capable of anything means. What capable of anything means is when you leave the house and the babysitter comes and one of your children is in a particularly bad rut of disobedience and uh, just being especially, you know, I'm into everything, I'm breaking things, I'm going to see how many buttons I can push, all of that. And you tell the babysitter, what do you tell him? Keep your eye on him. He's capable of anything. That's what the word means. It means he's willing to... Craftiness is being willing to do anything that you can to get what you want. So when when the religious leaders asked Jesus in, in Luke chapter 20 about whether they should pay their taxes, they say, should we pay tribute to Caesar or not? It says that Jesus perceived their craftiness. They would do anything to trap him, even ask a legitimate question to trap him. And then in Ephesians 4... Paul says that as we grow up in Christ, we need to do that so that we're not tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning. There's the word, even though English craftiness is in there. Cunning is this word, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. In fact, in this letter, Paul's already denied that he's crafty. In chapter 4, verse 2, We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways we refuse to practice, same word, cunning or to tamper with God's Word. Those who are leaders among us must not be crafty. Craftiness at its essence is to work and make it look like I am serving you when I am really serving me. It will look as though I am here for your benefit, but I am here to get everything I can out of you for my sake that's the kind of craftiness that Paul was accused of and so he makes his argument through these rhetorical questions in chapter in verse 17 to 19 did i take advantage of you through any of those whom i sent to you no I urged Titus to go to, to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Now that name would ring a bell because earlier Paul had commended them for receiving Titus and honoring him and how much they loved him and all of those things. So now he brings it back up. You remember Titus? Did he take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Of course we did. Did we not take the same steps? Of course have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? Do you really think that we are out for ourselves? That we keep coming back? That we keep writing for ourselves? Then he says this, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. In the sight of God. Now, of course, everything happens in the sight of God. Nothing escapes the sight of God. But, that's, but Paul is trying to say something particular here, that God is Paul's witness. He's not in ministry for himself. He's in it to build them up. He loves them. I mean, he throws in that word beloved right in the middle of this whole thing. Did you catch that? I mean, just don't run over that. All for your upbuilding, beloved. Beloved. He wants to see them mature in Christ. What a helpful reminder for all of us, isn't it? I mean, when we agree to serve in one task or another, whether it's to take a meal to someone, to drive someone to the doctor, to teach a class, to serve in the cafe, to be part of the praise team, we can't make ourselves our aim. Our aim must be the good of others, considering others more important than ourselves. So here's, here's a quick litmus test. You want to know how you're aiming at yourself. One way you could discover that you're aiming at yourself and it looks like you're serving others is when you begin to measure your service and your level of encouragement and whether you will keep going by what you get out of it rather than on whether it honors God and does good for other people. I just can't do this anymore. It's just wearing me out. I mean, people, when people quit, it's, it's, I mean, that's just one way. You cannot, we cannot serve… Of course there is joy in serving the Lord. We just reflected on it this morning at the end of our Praise Team time as we're praying. You should know that it is not drudgery to play instruments and to sing to the Lord. God has put something in the act of creating music and singing that is enjoyable and good. He's put great power in music. So, of course, there's joy. There's joy in preaching the Scriptures. There's joy in counseling others. There's joy in ministering. But if all I go into it saying, if I measure today's service by what did I get today... That's why it's always disturbing. Someone shows up at a membership class. They say, "Well, I know that church. I love that pastor. Why would you be coming over here? I'm just not getting what I want out of the church." Now, that's my vernacular summary of what they say. Boy, it's a difficult thing, isn't it? Because usually they don't mean there's no sound doctrine being preached. There's no attempts to care. Look, even attempts to care for people who are suffering are going to fall short in one way or another in every church. Even the most caring of churches can miss something, something can fall short, something can fall flat. But it's usually about other things. We should serve the Lord for His glory. And for the good of others. What if every single Sunday you pulled in, before you got out of your car, if you don't have kids that are going crazy in the back, before you got out of your car, but whatever the last quiet moment of your morning is before you come, and you said, Lord, I am going to gather with your church for your glory and for the good of others, trusting that you will bless me in doing it. What if that was the way we came to church every week? What if we walked into a group like this and our eyes were open to who's who's sitting alone? Who's suffering? And I could just go pray with them for a minute before the service starts. Or you see them during the service and you're like, I'm making a beeline there right afterwards. It shouldn't just be when people have leukemia and are facing their third round of chemotherapy that We spring into that kind of action. The difficulties of life are multivarious. Just just think right now. Who is it in the congregation you could encourage before you walk out the door today? How could you make from this point forward about other people if you haven't already? Last thing about godly leaders is that they are concerned for others, specifically their souls. Paul wants to arrive in Corinth, and he wants to have a sweet reunion with these folks. He wants there to be smiles and hugs all around and find that the false teachers are gone, the false teaching is gone, their brochures are no longer in the, lo- in the foyer, you know, their tapes are no longer... they tapes. Nobody's offering tapes anyway. Their MP3s have been deleted from the website. You know, all of that. That is what Paul wants. But he's afraid that's not what he'll get. The way things are looking, it looks like he's going to be walking into a mess when he gets there. It's kind of like when a teacher steps out of their classroom, like to chat with some other teacher, like for 30 seconds, hoping that the class will still be orderly and on task when they come back in, fearing that there will be children hanging from the ceiling. Someone will have busted out the emergency exit and is now running across the yard Airplanes are flying all over. Spitwads have been made. Thumb wars have been fought and lost. Tears are being shed. It's just chaos. Listen to the kind of chaos he's, when he fears walking into. Verse twenty: I fear that perhaps when I come, I may not find you as may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. What's compelling about this, I mean, that's a mess, isn't it? What's compelling about that mess is that almost, almost every single one of those words is found in one other text in the New Testament. It's in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 20, which comes under this heading. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Paul contrasts them there... In Galatians 5, with the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what he wants. He wants to smell the sweet aroma of the fruit of the Spirit, but his fear is that the stench of the works of the flesh are going to be filling the air when he arrives. He's afraid he'll have to come and mourn. He'll be cast down by the pain of seeing them. That's what he means by the Lord will humble him. He's overwhelmed with spiritual concern for them. I mean, Hebrews 13 says that those who are in positions of leadership are charged with watching over the souls of others. When you suffer, my friends, my heart is hurt. When you sin, my heart is hurt. I can't stand it. Paul feels the weight of that. He is not just coming to check in. He is coming to check on their souls. And I feel that weight. I mean, the fact that I will answer for my shepherding of this flock my part in shepherding this flock makes me tremble. I cannot answer for your decisions, but I will answer for my part. I will answer if there are times when I see something that must be addressed and I don't address it. When I have failed to do what I ought to do, I will answer for that. But church, when we do have godly men who lead well, who step in, who are active and who are not passive, who are seeking our good, who care for our souls, we should praise God. And we should value those godly leaders. Churches should value godly leaders. Those who are authenticated by evidence. Those who are sacrificial in love. Those who are above reproach. Those who are concerned for others. Now, friends, these leaders may not look like much. I know. I looked in the mirror this morning. And all the elders said, amen. All right? <laughs> I mean, the fact of the matter is we're just, in many ways, we're ordinary folks. Ordinary men that God has set apart and gifted in particular ways for, the, for His glory and for the good of the church. When you have men like this leading the church, God's, it's evident, isn't it, that God's hand is on them and that they are genuine in their leadership. I mean, this is how it was with Jesus, isn't it? Think of his birth. Think of his birth. It's miraculous. It's absolutely miraculous. Born of a virgin, but to the world, to Caesar, who's counting heads to see how powerful, to boast in his power, it just doesn't look like much. When I was at St. Francis on uh, Thursday, visiting Betty Jones, or Wednesday, I can't remember, it's one of those two days. I'm visiting with her, and uh, Jesus loves me, you know, dings over the speaker, which indicates another baby has been born. To Caesar, that's that's all the birth of Jesus is. It's just another ding, another feather in his cap, another person he's ruling over so ordinary, even weak, born in a manger. But the hand of God was clearly on Jesus of Nazareth. The hand of God was on Jesus because Jesus was the hand of God coming into the world to bring salvation. Jesus and His teaching were authenticated by evidence by His miracles, by His absolute power over nature and disease and demons and death. Jesus was clearly concerned for the souls of other people. What was His main message as He went about, according to Mark 1? Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus was above reproach. Peter wrote that about Him in 1 Peter 2. He committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in His mouth. And finally, Jesus was sacrificial in love, wasn't He? He says, there is no greater love than to lay down your life for your friends. And then He goes and He does it. Ephesians 5, Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. And what was the world's response to Jesus? John 1, He came to His own and His own people did not receive Him. The world didn't receive the Jews didn't receive him the world didn't receive him the world didn't value him the world certainly didn't worship him The world is meant to value the godliest of all men in human history and that is the god man Jesus Christ so valuable that we will give our lives to following him But the world didn't do it and the world doesn't do it today you know, what often happens is people take his birth as a sentimental addition to their Christmas celebration. The world may take his life as a nice example to follow of how to care for those who are downcast. The world will take his teaching selectively and say it is good, moral, ethical teaching for us. The world will even look at His death and mourn the fact that He died under the oppression of the Romans. But the world does not receive Him as He is. God in the flesh, whose words are the very words of God, whose life was perfect and sinless, fulfilling God's righteous demands, and whose death was precious and substitutionary, fulfilling God's demand that sin be punished. But the question this morning... Isn't whether the world receives Jesus? Isn't whether the world knows Jesus? Isn't that an, isn't that an easy answer? Isn't that easy? To just look out there at the world, say, well, the world doesn't receive him. No, no, no. The question this morning for you is have you received him? Do you treasure him as Lord and as Savior? Have you turned from your sin and trusted in Him alone to save you? If not, you can do that right now. We're going to have just a moment so that if you want to call on the Lord right where you are to save you, you can do that. And then I'm going to pray for us. And then we will finish with the commitment cards that we spoke of. Let's take a moment of silence for you to pray on your own and then I will pray. Our Lord, we bow before you, thankful for your word, thankful for the reminder that godliness is more important to you than giftedness. We pray as a congregation that we will value godly leaders where we see them. Lord, I thank you for Kevin and Kurt, for Chad and John and Stephen, for placing them in this role as pastor, as elder, to lead your church. I pray for them. I ask you, Lord, that in their lives, in their minds, and in their ministry, godliness will be more important than giftedness. That while we would always want to grow in the gifts that you give us, all the more help us to grow in godliness. I thank you for the deacons that you have placed in service to us, for James, for Gary, for Steve, for Rich, for Brian, for Doug, for Tom, for Jim, for Ron, and for Willie. I thank you for those who will be brought on board as deacons in this new year as well. And I pray these men will be committed to godliness, to honoring you and serving others. I pray that we as a church will value those who serve in this way. I thank you for every Sunday school teacher, everyone who's holding little ones back in the nursery, who's teaching preschoolers, teaching children, all the various ways that things are happening and things happen. Make us a people committed to godliness and make us a people who value, value it among us. I pray for those who may not know you Who know about Jesus Christ, about His birth, about His life, about His death, and about His resurrection. And I pray You will speak to their hearts, that You will pierce their hearts by the power of Your Spirit and awaken them to the reality that they don't need to just know about Jesus, they need to know Him. To turn from their sin and to trust in Him. And I pray that would be the case this morning. Be with us now as we seek to commit ourselves for your sake and for the sake of your church to particular goals for the next year. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, take uh, the card that you've been given. and.